Last week we discussed Esau's tears. Today we're going to discuss Jacob's tears because everyone thinks they're very different. But I hope to show you at the end of the day, they both had the same effect on, on, on Israel. I'm going to start off today with a clip from the 1987 Norman Jewison movie with Cher and Nicolas Cage. Does everyone remember that movie, Moonstruck? Okay. There's a point in the Moonstruck in which he takes her to the Metropolitan Opera. First of all, I, I just love that scene. But really, what is Norman Jewison accomplishing? Because this is a romantic comedy that's occurring in Brooklyn in a pizza shop. <laughs> and, you know, she's not meant for him. She's betrothed to his brother. And one of the most iconic moments of the film takes place in the opera house. So the opera La Boheme is a medrash on which the love story in Brooklyn is taking place. As the two lovers sit in the audience, we get a segment of Mimi's famous Don Deliate, the first such instance of the moment in the entire film. Loretta cries. Remember Johnny and Loretta? <laughs> Mimi's resignation of her love for Rodolfo echoing the way she feels regarding her pending marriage to his brother, Ronnie. And in this moment, the opera itself reflects the inner turmoil of the film's characters. It's also the very moment where we, the audience, have no doubt as to where Loretta's true feelings lie. Jewison removes all doubts about which man she really wants to be with, and the audience is now fully behind this potential pairing. And the entire movie prepares us for this very encounter of emotions, which incidentally is the climax of the picture, the movie, and of La Boheme. And so that is my segue into our text today, which I will now share with you, from the sublime to the, from the ridiculous to the sublime. And our pericope comes in Parshas Vayetze, 
chapter 29 of Genesis, when Jacob, Yaakov Avinu, finally meets up with uh, Rachel. Very different to Isaac, as we talked about, Vatipol, she fell off the camel. Here, Vayihi Kasher Ra Yaakov et Rachel bat Lavan achi imo, ve'et sod Lavan achi imo, Vayigash Yaakov, now look at the verbs, okay? Vayigash, he drew near, Vayogel Esoeven, he rolled the stone over the well, Vayashk, and he watered the stone of his father, Vayishak, and he kissed Rachel. Vayiso is kolo vayev. Do you see there's the movement of the verbs, the quantity of verbs in these two verses? The result of his gaze, Ra'a Yaakov et Rachel, the result of this gaze is Vayigash, Vayigel, Vayashk, Vayishak, Vayev. And the nadir of the total is Vayev, and he cried. And this crying, these tears that he shed, will be the subject of our meditation today. Now, many Mepharshim ask the same question. That is, what's a nice young man, a yeshiva bacher, who just spent 20 years in Brisk, or the yeshiva of Shem, come out and kiss somebody? Uh, they're not married. And why did he start crying after kissing? The Ibn Ezra offers the same answer. He says that Rachel was a ktana, a minor, and Yaakov could not consummate the marriage vows with her. That explains how he's allowed to kiss her, because she's a minor, and why he cried. Rabbeinu Bachia says the same thing. Ibn Ezra says he didn't kiss her on the lips, but on the head or the shoulder, suggesting that there was no romantic element to the kiss. Aha! And as to the second question, as to why Yaakov started to cry, we have to come to Rashi. Radak says he started crying because he wept for joy. When close relatives meet, not having seen each other, their emotions are hard to control, and they are overpowered by the cries of joy. Remember that when we look at Rashi. And the Sforna says that Yaakov wept because he wished he could have met her when he was younger. Had they met when the, he was young, they would have already been married and having children. So these are very upbeat responses. But then comes Rashi, the great Rashi. What does Rashi say? Vayef. Rashi says, he gives us two reasons. And remember, the Divrei Yisrael tells us that it's an important principle when you're studying Rashi, that when Rashi presents two possible explanations to a difficulty, there is usually some connection between the two possibilities. So let's think about that as I present to you the two possibilities. Rashi is very bothered, as is the Medrash, as to why, having met the love of his life, he immediately says he fell in love with her, he loved her, he loved her more than Alea. Constantly, his love for, for Rachel was eternal. So why did he cry? And so Rashi says, and he wept. Rashi 1 versus Rashi 2. Lefishet Sofa Baruch HaKodesh, when he kissed her, he saw through the Holy Spirit, through divine inspiration, that will, they will not share an eternal resting place, that she would not be buried with him, that somehow that she 
And he tells that to Joseph at the end of Miketz. He says, Mesa Olai Rachel, he tells Joseph, and he has to explain to his son after meeting him, after being away from him, why, in fact, she wasn't buried with him, that she died with him on the way. Now, Rashi's quoting from Genesis Rabbah, She'eno nichnesis imolik bura, she would not be buried with him. Now, let's go to the second interpretation of Rashi. And remember, we have to try and reconcile the two because he's bringing us both for a reason. And there is a connection between the two reasons. And we have to work that out because he doesn't tell it to us. He came with empty hands. He's coming to a wealthy man who has flocks and everything, and a person who comes, you know, without flowers to his betrothed or without a uh, trousseau, without a nadzen, without uh, nothing, caused him to cry. So the first time he wept is because he realized that the love of his life would only be in this world, but they would not be sharing the same burial plot together. The second one is much more what we would think prosaic. He came empty-handed. Who comes empty-handed to get betrothed to somebody? And he said, now he tells us this story, Eliezer Ebedovi Abba. Eliezer, my paternal grandfather's slave, he came to Lovon with nose rings, with smidim, or McDonald's, and delicacies, and smidim for braces when, when Abraham was sending him to find a wife for Isaac. But look at me, I've got nothing in my hand. Because Eliphaz, the son of Esau, pursued him at the command of his father, Lahorgo to kill him. So after Jacob had stolen the birthright and then stolen the bracha from Yitzchok, we learned last week that uh, Esau, shed three tears, and he screamed. Then he he did something. He's a hunter. So he sent Eliphaz to kill Yaakov, the Hisigo, and Eliphaz overtook him. And since Eliphaz grew up in the bosom of Isaac under his influence, Moshach Yodo, the way Abraham withdrew his knife from killing Isaac, so too, at the last moment, Eliphaz couldn't bring himself to slaughter Jacob. Irony. Moshach Yodo. Omalo. So Omalo. Eliphaz is now confiding to Jacob in this scene. What shall I do by my father's command? I can't kill you. But at the same time, I have to do what my father tells me to do. So Jacob says to, the, to him, Tol Mashabiyodi, I have a bunch of wealth. I'm coming to marry my Beshert. I'm coming to Rachel. I am coming to give her a huge dowry. Okay, here, Tol Biyodi, take it from me. Take it from me. Oni Choshev Kames, as we're told in the Gemara, that an Oni, a poor person, is considered like a, a dead person, right? The Gemara in Nadorim. There are four people who are like dead people. Okay. One of them is an Oni. Tol Mashabiyoti. Veheoni Choshev Kameis. Now Rashi brings that as to the reason number two for his crying. Reason number one 
I won't be buried with you. Reason number two, I, I've just been, I, I, I've had to give away my wealth to save my life. So Rashi gives these two reasons. Now, the Medrash comments that Yaakov, whilst he was being attacked by Eliphaz, recited the Posuk, Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where shall my salvation come? Oh, Ezri Meim Hashem My salvation comes from Hashem, the maker of heaven and earth. Upon reciting this posuk, Yaakov Avinu was able to arrive with peace of mind and was secure, even though he was impoverished. Now, what is the trick here? What is this posuk, El Horim? And I think that the word Horim, mountains, can be read as Horim, parents. It's a true Midrashic pun. Yaakov Avinu looked up to the previous time this same Shidduch scenario was at play, and he saw the great wealth that Eliezer had arrived with on behalf of his father. And experiencing this great sense of loss, he says, my father had this, but I have nothing. Where will I have what it takes to make this Shidduch happen? And that's why he relied, Ezri Meim Hashem Osa Shemayim Boretz. Very nice. Now, I want to share with you some insights from Rabbi Foreman, who just came out with the Sefer Genesis, a Parsha companion, and I find his clarity very inspiring. So he, too, is bothered by the two explanations of Rashi. The first being by Yisro Eskolech Vayech, because he would not go into her kavura with her. And the second one is because he came empty-handed. Now, he wants to argue that Rashi's two interpretations are not as different as they seem to be. In fact, according to Foreman, they are two sides of the same coin. And you have to understand the statement by Yisar es kolo vayefch. We had learned this statement by Yisar es kolo vayefch occurs throughout the Hebrew Bible, and it has a particular connotation. It seems to convey the sense that something is being lost irrevocably. Something precious is slipping through your fingers, and there is nothing you can do but watch it happen. In the first time we see Vayisa es kolo vayefch is by Hagar and Ishmael. She goes off into the desert with her young child, Ishmael, and when the water in the canteen is used up, he appears to be dying of thirst, and it is then she gives her, lifts up her voice and cries, something precious and irreplaceable is being lost, her son, and seemingly there's nothing she can do about it. Of course, it wasn't true. She just simply couldn't see the life-saving well that would allow him to live, maybe because she was overcome with emotion or she hid some distance from him. Talmidi Chachomim seemed to be ascribing a similar kind of mindset to Jacob when he first meets Rachel. In this case, Vatiso Eskolo Vatef, the precious one being lost, is none other than his beloved Rachel, the woman of his dreams. When Jacob first meets her, the Chachomim are saying he has a premonition that no matter how hard he tries, she will slip away from him. And how will she slip away? Well, the Chachamim give us the two explanations. They are really just allusions to the two ways in which Rachel will evade his grasp. 
One way Jacob loses her is in her death. She dies young, before him, years after he first meets Rachel, when Jacob is finally en route back home to Haran, she dies giving birth to her second child, Benjamin, forcing Jacob to bury her by the roadside. When Jacob first met her, according to this Midrash, and Rashi quotes it, he had a prophetic vision of that moment when she dies, and it caused him to cry. Knowing you'll be buried with your soulmate can bring a measure of peace, but that kind of peace, that connection to Rachel in death would elude Yaakov or Wiener. But then, in a very, very brilliant way, Foreman says that Rachel would elude Jacob in life too because of the second explanation of Eliphaz. What in Jacob's life becomes the greatest obstacle he faces in achieving union with Rachel? It's the switcheroo of the sisters that we spoke about yesterday, under the chuppah, in the wedding tent, the wedding night. After Jacob worked seven years to earn Rachel, his father-in-law substitutes a veiled layer for Rachel on their wedding life. Again, Rachel eludes his grasp. Why did that happen? Why was Lovan able to take advantage of Jacob so thoroughly? That's what Rashi is getting at in the second explanation. Lavan was able to take advantage of Jacob because when Jacob raped Rachel, he had come with empty hands. And why did he come with empty hands? Because if you take this back, the trickery that he had employed in stealing the, the blessing from Isaac. What if Jacob had not come to meet Rachel with empty hands? What if, like Eliezer, he had shown up in Haran with massive wealth that he had given away to Eliphaz, with sacks of golds and jewels? Then he would have been able to dazzle the damsel's family just as Eliezer had done. But Lovon made no attempt to beguile Eliezer or play games with him. His copious wealth had given Lovon the sense that Eliezer was a man of substance, not to be trifled with. And the same could have been true, Chachomim are telling us, should have been true for Yaakov. But something went wrong. He lost his money on the way, and when he did meet Lovon, the penniless Jacob had to give for Rachel the only thing he could give, hard labor. He regarded him as a pauper and took advantage of him. And so Jacob already then had lost Rachel for seven years because he had come to love on empty-handed. So now we can see that the two interpretations that he saw that she would no longer be with him in death and even in life. So then this also harpens back to Vayiso Esov Kolo Vayev. The rabbis are reading the biblical text very closely picking up that language that propels them in the Midrashic direction. What did they notice? It's as if they're trying to tell us, you want us to understand why Yaakov cried? Just look at the last time someone lifted his voice and cried. Esau had cried the same way. The three tears of Esau last week we discussed when his brother deceived him. So the sages conclude that Esau's tears led through a natural train of consequences to Jacob's tears. The sages' story of the encounter with Eliphaz is their way of reconstructing that train of consequence. 
It begins when Rebecca sends Yaakov away to protect him from his brother's wrath. But Esau's vengeance, the rabbi's reason, would not be so easily foiled. He would dispatch his son Eliphaz, and Jacob has to survive the manhunt. How? By giving away his wealth. And the escape comes at a terrible hidden cost by becoming a pauper. The tears Jacob caused his brother to shed when he substituted himself for Esau, replacing an older child with a younger one, are now repaid with the tears Jacob sheds when his father-in-law, Lovon, replaces a younger child, Rachel, with an older one, Leah. The deceiver has become deceived. Very nice. Now that explains the Rashi, I want to give you just two more upbeat interpretations before we all pour ourselves out crying. The first is Rabbi Yosef Salant in the Bear Yosef adds, the reason for Yaakov's tears is he wanted his tears to join with Rachel's weeping. Remember yesterday we discussed Rachel Mavakal Baneha, that she is crying as her children go into exile. So he wants his tears to join with her weeping so she'd not be crying by herself. And therefore the phrase used by Yisor Kolo Vayef mirrors the Ramah, Kol Ramah, upon which Rachel Imenu is heard. The Vayiso Kolo, he lifts it up because Kol Ramah, on that elevated place, she is crying. But the Breslava Rebbe in Lema'achar Atir also gives this beautiful interpretation for the cause of his tears. Yaakov Avinu perceives the role Rachel Imenu would play in Eicha Rabba Petichta 24 that we discussed yesterday to mitigate the din on the exile as Ben Israel goes from the land. As Yirmiyahu says, Rachel kol nishma Rachel mavakal baneha, she refuses to be comforted. So Yaakov Avinu's tears will not be effective. Yitzchak and Avram's tears are not effective. Only the tears of Rachel. So his mingling, his tears with hers is a foreshadow of the fact that of all the Avos, it is only as we learn in Echarabba Petichta 24, that it is Rachel's tears alone that will be effective. Okay, I want to go now a little bit deeper. And in order to do that, I have to be naughty again and go back to the most amazing line in Moonstruck. Now you remember she has a conscience because she's betrothed to Ronnie's brother. And so he takes her after this La Bohème scene and she goes, where are you taking me? And it's outside his apartment. And she says, no, no, we made a deal that it was just be one night. You take me to the opera and you forget about me. And then he says the following. Loretta, I love you. Not, not like they told you love is. And I didn't know this either. But love don't make things nice. It ruins everything. It breaks your heart. It makes things a mess. We, we aren't here to make things perfect. The snowflakes are perfect. The stars are perfect. Not us. Not us. We are here to ruin ourselves and, and to break our hearts and love the wrong people and, and die. I mean that the storybooks are bullshit. Now I want you to come upstairs with me and, and get in my bed. 
I thought that this was just absolutely what comes to my mind when I'm reading this, this tragic story, this kissing and then crying. What is it about the kiss and the cry? And reminding me of William Blake, the sick rose. A rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night, in the howling storm. What made it sick? Has found out thy bed of crimson joy, and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. Love destroys. That's what it does. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's mad. Which brings me to my last inappropriate picture. <laughs> and who is this? Now, we know that in Dante's Vita Nuova, commonly this is identified with Beatrice, who appears as one of his guides in the last book of the Divine Comedy, Paradiso. And in the last four songs, there she takes over as a guide from the Latin poet Virgil, because as a pagan, Virgil cannot enter paradise. And because being the incarnation of beautific love, as her name implies, it is Beatrice, his muse, who leads him into the beatific vision. And Beatrice represents this divine revelation, theology. And therefore, he leaves her for the love of the divine. At age of nine, Dante fell in love with this Beatrice di Folco Portinari. This is a picture of her. And from that moment on and through the writing of his Divine Comedy, when he was around 42, he strove to write a love poem that adequately captured the fulfillment that came from his relationship with Beatrice. But writing in the high Middle Ages, when medieval Christianity presented a structured world with clear hierarchies, Dante was forced to answer the quintessential question, whether human love could or more importantly, should be comparable to the love between man and God. Remember, Rabbi Akiva had already told us that all the books of Tanakh are Kodshim, but Shir Hashirim is Kodshe Kodshim. Why? Because he saw that that romantic love is the mirror of Am Yisrael's love for the divine. And for our Pasha, although the times are different, the convention is the same. And for us, the question is all the more poignant. What is the role of Yaakov Ovinu's romantic love for Rachel? Does romantic love set us up for an unfulfilled love? And Mark Wolf writes in both narratives comparing Dante's Beatrice and Lahavdil, Yaakov for Rachel, our heroes set out to differentiate their love from the common variety, insisting that what they are experiencing is an intimacy and a connection more fulfilling than ordinary desire or lust. The sin they share is to have wasted all their love on something that couldn't, in the end, offer spiritual fulfillment. For Yaakov, the differentiation comes in this moment of love at first sight. Vayar, Vayishak, Vayevch. Seeing Rachel, he performs the superhuman task of removing the stone covering the well and then embraces Rachel and cries the first actual tears that we see in the book of Genesis. These tears are very different from the sobbing that bursts forth from Esau after learning 
that his blessing has been stolen a couple of chapters ago. Beyond the verb choice, there is a linguistic connection between the action of Jacob and Rachel's embrace and the tears that follow, suggesting that the moment itself is unique. And as you we've rehearsed, Rashi himself presents the two options. But in both readings, both the Rashi's reading that we won't be buried together and in the reading that I've come with empty hands, as Aviva Zornberg connects both options, if I can quote her, to a sense of loss that comes with the moment of the embrace in the center of the love, of the kiss, of the embrace. In both readings, Jacob's tears are connected with death. La petite mort, as they say in France. On the one view, he cries because of his love for Rachel and because of their eventual separation. Not only death, but even burial will divide them. There is an anguish at the very heart of love. As Dante says, love can draw one to another so that she becomes the center of one's world. And if one is blessed enough to be drawn into such a love, then everything in one's life makes sense in relation to her. And the sense it all makes is shining and glorious and satisfying. One understands oneself completely and happily in terms of the definition this love gives to one's life. So this, this hugging and kissing is a moment of intimacy that exposes the meaning of his life. For Jacob and Rachel, as for Dante and Beatrice, their love is substantially different from any experience previously. They make the case through their actions and emotions and vulnerability to each other that one can achieve fulfillment of life through human love. However, as much as we can make our case for the spiritual fulfillment of romantic love, the texts in both cases lead us and force us, the reader, into a different direction and insist upon a tragically opposite conclusion. Dante's journey through the Divine Comedy ultimately concludes with, we are free to retrain our desires so that they are directed towards what ultimately sustains and fulfills them, that is God. Beatrice is Dante's way to God. She takes her place as the savior and only is his ladder to the love of the divine. And he adds at the end of Paradiso, but now my will and my desire like wheels revolving with an even motion were turning with the love that moves the sun and all the stars. What for Dante is a moment of enlightenment, for Jacob our father is a series of tragic turns. The most obvious of these is when his love for Rachel is thwarted by his father-in-law. A victim of the deception that brought him to Rachel, Yaakov Avinu begins his life not with his intended love, but with Leah. God seems to be sending a harsh message to the lovers through our text. It is a tragedy at the end of the day. Why? As Zornberg says, the struggling complex couple with their many children remain forever together in the cave of Machpelah the cave that is called double cave, the cave of doubles, the cave of couples, 
whilst Rachel, the only true wife of intention and desire, is buried separately on the road to Bethlehem. Rachel's loss is devastating for Jacob and for God. Although his line is secure and we are all named from him, he is broken with Rachel's loss and mourns their love through his dying breath. After her death, he's unable to imagine fathering another child, and we cannot help but share in his tears for Jacob and Rachel. And what we learn from the above and this whole meditation today, because of our own experiences of love, and that in the center core of our love is this craziness, this brokenness, is not the value of romantic love, according to our texts. God's love, his chesed, is one that is blind. God would like nothing more than for us to love all, serve all. But when it comes down to it, we remain human. Our flaws include gradations of emotion, and we cannot turn a blind eye to our experience of romantic love. And this, according to Mark Wolf, is the lesson of both Dante and Jacob. There is an essential role that romantic love plays and one that even God cannot comprehend. It is Dante's relationship with Beatrice that serves as the catalyst for Dante's realization of divine love. And I would add, it is the catalyst for Rabbi Akiva who reads Shir Hashirim as the trigger for the divine love that we have as Am Yisrael. It leads Dante to the direct experience of God that is the moment of fulfillment. And similarly with Jacob Avinu, it is only through his love for Rachel Imenu that he gains an understanding of what it means to love and serve unconditionally and fulfill his destiny in the bloodline. After all, that's what Bereshus is about. It's the bloodline. His experience with Rachel, as tragic and as heartbreaking as it is, is one where he truly learns what it means when God promises, Anochi imoch, I am with you. And so we bring together the Midrashic twists and turns of La Bohème and its Midrashic interpretation in Moonstruck and Dante's comedy, and Rabbi Akiva's reading of Shia Shirim as the Holy of Holies. But at all times, it is based on our own experience of love, of falling in love, of the madness of love, of the craziness of how it ruins us. I think that that's what is being demanded of us in our spiritual lives as well.